You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We are making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We have come to the 16th chapter. This morning we're going to look at verses 21 through 23, but I want us to begin reading at verse 13. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. The Word of God says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that He was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this time of praise that we have enjoyed and been blessed by and encouraged by. We do thank you for those who serve us so well in that ministry here in Pastor Josh, as he leads us, and we thank you for the way that our hearts are directed to you. And that last song that we sang together is what is truly on our hearts. We give praise to the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has taken away our sins, who has brought us to you, who has reconciled us to you, who is our life as well as our great high priest who intercedes for us even this very moment. We give you praise for our Savior. Lord, would you help us in this next hour? Would you help me to declare the things that I've learned and have prepared? And would you be at work in our hearts as we listen? So that what we experience here this morning is truly from your hand, supernatural in nature, explained by your Spirit resulting in the true transformation of human lives. Our desire would be, Lord, that today would be both in the form of conversion and in the form of 
ongoing sanctification. We gather as your church, we need this means of grace that you've ordained for us, the public gathering of the church and the public preaching of your word. But we're also mindful of those who will hear me today who don't yet know you, and we ask that you would save. We ask for all of these things in the powerful, wonderful, sweet name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When our Lord told His disciples in verse 20 that they should tell no one that He was the Christ, we wondered about that last week and we wondered why. Having just praised Peter's confession of Him that He would then put this limitation on His disciples. And we said that at least one reason would be because there was a widespread misconception in the minds of the Jewish people regarding the Messiah. To go out and tell the masses that Jesus is the Messiah and for them to take those words and run those words through the grid of their misunderstanding would not be helpful. Most Jewish people were not looking for a Messiah like Jesus. They thought of the Messiah in political terms in some cases. They thought of the Messiah in military terms in some cases. What they all thought of was an immediate kingdom on earth. But what almost no one thought of was a Messiah in substitutionary terms. They were not looking for a Messiah who would save them by dying for them. They didn't envision a Messiah who would be rejected by their religious leaders, who would be crucified, cursed by hanging on a tree, not thinking of someone who would offer himself, who would be both truly divine and truly human, and would offer himself as the sin sacrifice for his people. They didn't envision a resurrection, an ascension into heaven, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the age that would begin after that, that we live in right now, in which God would make use of men like Peter as Jesus would build His church. This was not their thinking. Even John the Baptist, who said, Behold the Lamb of God. I mean, that's substitutionary language. Even John the Baptist revealed some confusion at the end of his life when he sends messengers to Jesus to ask whether he's the one or they should look for another. And the very reason why he's confused is things are not progressing as he envisioned. So there's no doubt there had to be misunderstanding cleared up with respect to the masses when it came to who Jesus really is and what he came to do. You can't respond to someone you don't understand. But what our verses this morning reveal is his concern would have not just been for the masses. His concern about misunderstanding extended to his own disciples. Peter's confession was profound. It was the result of heavenly light. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter confessed regarding the person of Christ what is exactly true. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the promised one. True. And then, how profound is this? You are the Son of the living God. 
Peter had the person of Christ correct. But what Peter had not yet grasped and what the other disciples had not yet grasped was the mission of Christ. This is who Jesus is, but why did He come into the world? What is His mission? What did He come to do? And the conversation that we look at this morning in verses 21 to 23 reveals that Peter was not yet clear on that. In fact, none of the disciples were. Just as Peter's confession was not just his own, he is the mouthpiece for the other apostles, so his error is not just his own. He's giving voice to what the other disciples thought as well. So this morning as we look at these verses, we're going to think about knowing Christ, the need for disciples to know and understand our Lord. Obviously, our lack of understanding isn't in the area, I mean, those of us who know Jesus this morning, our lack of understanding isn't regarding the mission of Christ. The gospel has come to us. We've been enlightened about that. But I am certain that every person in this room who truly knows Jesus, you don't yet know Him as well as you will one day. You don't yet know Him as well as you should. So there's an ongoing need for disciples to understand their Lord. Look at these verses under three headings. The first one is this. In verse 21 we see this is a turning point for the ministry of Jesus. This is a turning point for the ministry of Jesus. Notice how the verse begins, from that time. Following Peter's great confession, from that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Those words from that time point to a new phase in the ministry of Jesus. As Christ is presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew, up until this point, most of the teaching of Jesus that Matthew records for us is public. Occasionally we meet with that which was private. Now we move on in the Gospel of Matthew, and most of what we're going to meet with is private instruction. And then occasionally we're going to meet with public instruction. Why? Why this shift? Why this change? Because Jesus is getting His men ready for what is coming. This same sort of language, this transition language, we met with earlier in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is following His wilderness temptation. This is following the arrest of John the Baptist. Now Jesus launched into His Galilean ministry. And Matthew uses that language from that time. And so in verse 21, he repeats it now, for the second time in his gospel account, from that time. Now here's another shift. Here's another turning point. This turning point is focused on His own disciples. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples so we're entering into a, an intense preparation period. 
And when it says he began to show them, what that indicates is this is, this is one of many occasions in which Jesus is giving them this kind of teaching. He will teach them this sort of thing again and again and again. A lot of what he says to them, they're not going to fully understand until later. We see much evidence of this, don't we? They hear him, but they don't hear him. I think it's comparable to preloading a hard drive. He's loading them with the information that later on the Holy Spirit of God is going to activate and make use of. But he's loading the information in right now. What is he showing them? Well, he mentions five things. First of all, where he must go. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Headed to Jerusalem to experience what he's about to describe. And he, he wants the expectations of his disciples to be rightly informed. Their expectation would have been he's going to go into Jerusalem and be crowned. Instead, he's going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. We've seen earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, there are times when Jesus avoided conflict. He would depart from regions where scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees were becoming agitated. But now he's going right into the heart of the furnace, right into the heart of the lion's den. And he wants his men to expect what they're all going to experience. And this would have been easy to be tested on early on because as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you would think he's going to be crowned. But he's telling them in advance that is going to be momentary. He tells them what he must suffer. Verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. The suffering is not going to be singular. It's going to be full of variety. He's going to suffer many things. He'll be attacked, dishonored, rejected, mistreated, disrespected in a multitude of ways. And those who will lead the opposition are the least expected, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. That threesome would have represented what made up the Sanhedrin. The elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees would be found in the first category, in the third category, elders, scribes, Pharisees served in that way, along with the chief priests of the people. One definite article modifies all three nouns, which underscores the unified opposition to Jesus. Together, these three groups that are mentioned will stand against the Messiah. Those whom you would expect to lead in the way of righteousness, if they were legitimate and genuine spiritual leaders, will in fact be the instigators and the perpetrators of great wickedness. And he tells them, fourth, where it's all going to end. Where he's going to go, what he's going to suffer, who's going to lead in that suffering. And then he says, verse 21, and be killed. I am going to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And yet he will triumph. And be killed, verse 21, and be raised up on the third day. I mean, this is something that had never been seen in the history of the world, a resurrection. Raised to never die again. Raised up on the third day. And in addition, he's teaching them that all of this 
from a divine point of view, is absolutely necessary. This has all been settled in advance. This is ordained by God. This is not a plan B or something going wrong. This is exactly what was planned from all eternity. Because he says in verse 21 that it's necessary. He began to show his disciples that he must, little Greek word day, which means it is necessary. It was necessary that he go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. This is non-negotiable with respect to the plan and purposes of God. This must be done. Why must it be so? That he might save his people from their sins. That he might fulfill all righteousness. That he might fulfill everything the Scriptures foretold concerning God's plan to redeem not just man, but all of creation. A turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From that time, Jesus begins to prepare His men with all of this information. Second thing we see, this is not just a turning point, this is a testing point for the understanding of the disciples. This turning point tests Christ's men. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. You may have a little note there, a little number one there in your English text, which indicates literally it is God be merciful. God be merciful, Lord. Let this not be so. This shall never happen to you. What Christ has talked about now in very plain terms is testing the minds of these men. This is not what they envisioned. This is not what they expected. Despite all that he said to them leading up to this time, and on many occasions he's talked about his death already, but they haven't gotten it so that this plain instruction is testing them. Will you trust Jesus when you don't like what he's saying? What came out of our Lord's mouth troubled Peter. He doesn't like it. And the way that Peter responds, I think, serves to test us. And we like to laugh at Peter a little bit, don't we? We like to chuckle at him. And we'll say uh, that he immediately follows that profound confession with this profound blunder. Look at Peter. Ha, 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 ha. I wonder, are we like him? Was he unlike us? When we look at Peter's response, I think there are four questions we could have asked Peter. Those four questions, as I said, his response tests us. We can ask ourselves these same four questions. First of all, we should have asked if we had been there, Peter, do you understand who Jesus really is? I mean, you've just confessed who he is. Did you really understand what you confessed? You confess he's the Messiah, the Christ, but in addition, you have confessed he is the Son of God. Do you believe that? Because now you're taking him aside and rebuking him. You're telling the Son of God that he's wrong. Stop talking like this, Son of God. In fact, you say, this shall never happen to you. Lord, you've got this wrong. 
And to say he rebuked him is not an understatement. Epitimao is the word to express strong disapproval of someone. Rebuke, reprove, censure. Speak seriously, warn in order to prevent an action or bring one to an end. Stop it! Have you forgotten already, Peter, what you just confessed? Who is this one to whom you're speaking? By the way, this raises the question, doesn't it? When the disciples would hear Jesus talk about His death and resurrection, what were they hearing? I mean, if this is so shocking to Peter, why was he so surprised? He's heard it before in more veiled terms, but nonetheless, what were you thinking before? D.A. Carson wrote this, How much of Jesus' sayings about His death did the disciples understand before the events? The gospel evidence points in two complementary directions. On the one hand, the disciples understand perfectly well. Otherwise, for instance, Peter could not possibly have rebuked Jesus. On the other hand, they cannot believe that Messiah will really be killed because their conception of the Messiah does not allow for a suffering servant. Therefore, Peter dares to rebuke Jesus. And the disciples begin to think that Jesus' predictions of His sufferings must be in some way non-literal. Maybe this is what they thought. That He's using language that is not literal in nature. For example, in Mark 9.9, the Bible says this, And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen. This is after the transfiguration of Jesus. To tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What does he mean by this? Not literal. Whatever they understood, I don't know, but I know this. Peter's response is completely out of step with his confession. If He is the Messiah, if He is the Son of God, then He's right. He's always right. And you would not pull Him aside to rebuke Him. As I said, we laugh about Peter. But examine yourself for a moment. Compare what we confess about our God, what we say about our God, with our actions and our attitudes, our responses and our words, when we meet with something we don't like. You meet with something you don't understand. Difficult things. Challenging things. Heartbreaking things. Do we remember what we know about our God? When you meet with something you don't like, is God still good? Is He still good in that situation? Do you remember that? Is He all-wise? How many of you believe that God is all-wise? Is He all-wise when you don't like the way it's going? Is He all-wise? Is He still sovereign? Is He in control of every detail of every situation you're facing in your life? When you're afraid? When you're facing something that seems like it's about to get out of hand and you don't know what the end of it is going to be, you would confess in this room, in this setting, that God is sovereign Do you confess the same thing in your attitudes, in your responses, in your thinking, in your words when you meet with something that frightens you? Is He still sovereign? Is He still to be trusted? Can you trust Him? Do you trust Him? Is His Word still to be obeyed? Can we be honest with ourselves and admit that sometimes we would never confess this But this is how we practice. 
Sometimes we feel that another person's disobedience that affects us then sets us free to be disobedient ourselves. Lord, I know what your word teaches about my attitudes and my thoughts and my words, my responses, but I really don't care right now because of the way this person has treated me. Is God worthy to be obeyed when it's not like you want it to be? Is He still worthy to be worshipped? In pain, is God worthy to be worshipped? So Peter has confessed one thing, but now he's responding in a way that doesn't match his confession. Peter, do you know who Jesus is? I know you know it, but do you know it? Second question we could ask Peter, Peter, do you understand who you really are? Do you know who you really are? This is not just a gross underestimation of who Jesus is. This was a gross overestimation of who Peter is. You have said he's the Messiah. You've said he is the Son of God. Who are you to rebuke him? Who are you to tell him he's wrong? Peter, does Jesus need you as his counselor? Does he need you as his corrector? Will you be the Lord's helper? Does he take care of you or do you take care of him? And again, we we laugh at that perhaps in our hearts from time to time. Oh, Peter, look at Peter. He's grossly overestimated himself. But when we are hurting, when, when something is absolutely not the way we want it to be, do we find ourselves trying to serve as the Lord's counselor? This is, this is not how it should be, God. This is not how it should be going. This is, these are not the circumstances I should be having to deal with. Let me, let me inform you, God, as to how this should be right now. Not like this, but like this. This is how it should be. We're not alone, are we? This is the state of foolish human beings. And just because you're in pain, great pain, It does not excuse us from trying to serve as the Lord's counselor. I think about Job. There's nobody in this room who's experienced what Job experienced. And the Lord didn't let him off the hook just because he was in great pain, did he? I mean, the Lord was merciful as he's merciful with all of us and kind and and always gracious and good. But he didn't let Job off the hook. Job 38 verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And there's a long list of things the Lord then gives to Job that would have humbled him. You come to chapter 40, verse 1, and the Bible says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I love this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Right? Job says, I give up. I stop. Next verse. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. I'm not finished yet, son. You want to stop, but I'm not done. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God's mistreating me. Put God in the wrong so that you can be in the right. Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Can you do that, Job? Because this is the one whom you're addressing. This is the one with whom you're contending. This is the one you're attempting to correct. Verse 14, then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. When you're at that point, then I'll say you can take care of yourself. How many of our soul troubles, right, what goes on in our hearts, would go away if we would just admit that we're nothing? How many of our anxieties would go away if we just stopped making too much of ourselves? If we would say this, Lord, you alone are worthy of glory, and you are worthy of all glory, so that whatever you choose to do with my small life that gives you glory, that is right. That is right. If it means my whole world is turned upside down, but it's fulfilling your sovereign decrees, this is right. I bow. Like Job said, I put my hand over my mouth. Glorify yourself through my small life. What are you in your own estimation? Peter, who is Jesus? Do you know him? Who are you? Do you know you? Third question we could have asked Peter, do you understand, Peter, the spiritual forces at work in this world? Do you understand the spiritual forces at work in this world? How does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? This shall never happen to you, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Those words must have shocked Peter. They must have stung. Satan? I'm saying this, Jesus, because I love you. I'm saying this because I, I believe in you. I follow you. Satan? Well, our Lord was not calling Peter a devil. What he was doing was identifying in Peter's words and actions the activity of the devil. Peter does not belong to Satan, but Peter can be duped by Satan. Peter does not belong to Satan, but Peter for a moment can speak in a way that does Satan's work. He's saying to Peter, Peter, what you're saying right now accords with the powers of darkness. Remember in Christ's wilderness temptations, what was the devil offering? He was offering a crown without a cross. A crown without a cross. And what do Peter's words reflect but the promise of a crown without a cross? You're saying just what Satan would say. Not surprising, is it, that later on the Lord uses Peter to write these words, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, 
be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Dear ones, when the Lord saved you, He took you out of Satan's marketplace. You don't belong to the devil. You'll never be touched by the enemy in that sense. His hands are off you. You belong to God. But you live in a world that marches according to his drumbeat and still present in you is unredeemed sinfulness so that you can be influenced by things you should not be influenced by. And as a result, you can become an influence for things you ought not to be an influence for. God's people can be used in horrible ways if they're not mindful of the fact that it's not just flesh and blood that exist in this world that we're living in. There are real spiritual forces at work so that our thinking, our attitudes, our behaviors, our words are reflecting either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. And though we don't belong to the kingdom of darkness any longer and never will again, and though the Lord will not take his hand off of us and will conform us to his own image, for a moment, for a time, for a snippet, for a window, we can be an influence for the wrong kingdom. And that extends to what comes out of our mouths. What is going on in your heart will come out of your mouth. And so if you and I don't live our lives cognizant of this very real enemy who's going about seeking someone to devour, if we're not mindful of the real spiritual forces at work in this world of ours, we will find ourselves being used in ways that Jesus would rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, do you understand the spiritual forces at work in this world? Brother, sister, do you understand the spiritual forces at work in this world? When you're being tried, tested, when it's something hard to understand, when it's something really painful to you, do you understand what a dangerous place you're standing in if you don't remain aware that either you're going to respond in a way that represents the kingdom of God or you're going to respond in a way that the enemy of your soul can use for harm? How are you responding to your test. Peter failed this test. And Jesus identified the spiritual forces that stood behind his failure. Get behind me, Satan. Which leads to the fourth question we could ask him. Do you understand the necessity of resisting those forces? You see, dear ones, just knowing they exist is not enough. We have to make the conscious choice to resist those forces. And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you believe that He is the Son of God, then even when He says something you don't understand, or He says something you don't like, you submit yourself to His words. You say, I don't understand that. I don't like that. But it's the truth, because it came out of His mouth. And so I submit myself to it, I will ponder it. I will think about it. I will ask questions about what I, I don't understand. I'll give my Lord opportunity to help me understand it better. But what I will not do is disagree with it. And what I will not do is resist it. If Peter had for a moment compared his confession with his response, he would have submitted to what Jesus just said and asked for more understanding of it. He would not have rebuked Jesus. 
and told him it's not going to happen. Submit yourselves therefore unto God. Resist the devil, he will flee. This is what the Bible says. Jesus in his own temptation answers Satan with Scripture. Answers Satan with Scripture. Answers Satan with Scripture. When we find ourselves in situations that are severely testing us, we must consciously submit ourselves to the words of God. It's A-OK to say to the Lord, I don't understand this. This especially hurts. I don't know what to do next, but I will submit myself to your word. Even when it comes down to the level of how I'm thinking, allowing your word to be the Lord over my affections and my emotions, allowing your word to be the standard by which I say what I say, I know there's an enemy afoot at work, and therefore I must resist those forces by submitting myself to your word. Third thing we see in our text. It's a turning point for the ministry of Jesus. It's a testing point for the understanding of the disciples. Third, it becomes a teaching point for the focus of the disciples. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. If I listened to you, I would be off course. You represent resistance to where I need to go with these words of yours, these ideas of yours. And then he says this, for, how did Peter in that moment become a stumbling block? For, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This is what Peter had to learn. This is what you and I must learn. We've got to get our minds right. If we're going to represent someone submitted to the kingdom of God and an influence for the kingdom of God, then our mind must be right. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves being a stumbling block to what would most please Jesus. Let me point out in closing three things we learn about a right mind from Peter's wrong thinking. Our Lord specifically mentions where Peter's focus is. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man, so let's think about that. Let me point out three things. First of all, a right mind requires recognizing that Satan can be at work in sincerity. A right mind recognizes Satan can be at work in sincerity. What do I mean? I mean, you can be sincere, but sincerely wrong. I don't have any doubt, do you, that Peter's words reflected a sincere love for Jesus? Why is this so distasteful to Peter? Jesus didn't talk about Peter dying. Jesus talked about Jesus dying. Why is this so distasteful to Peter? Because Peter loves Jesus. And this won't be the last time that Peter is sincere, but sincerely wrong. Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. They might all deny you, but I will never deny you. Peter, before the cock crowed, denied Jesus three times. He was sincere, but he was wrong. Do you recognize, brother, sister, sincerity is not the standard for what it means to please God. Sincerity is not the test of correctness. You can have sincere people functioning as mouthpieces for the enemy. 
There's an objective standard for right and wrong, and it's not our feelings. It's the Word of God. It doesn't matter how strongly you feel something. If you feel something strongly that doesn't match Scripture, you're wrong. You may feel about it with all the intensity of your soul. You may be fierce on a particular subject. I feel so strongly about this. If our culture is in need of learning anything, it is certainly in need of learning, your feelings are not the standard of truth. Your feelings don't explain what's true and what's not. But God's Word is true. If you're going to have a right mind, you have to remember, Satan can be at work, even when I'm absolutely sincere. You run into this sometimes, don't you, when you talk about doctrinal error with people? You can show them from the Word of God where they have been wrong, but there is such an influence from their past or their traditions or their parents or their siblings or what the implications of this would be for my decisions in the future. Their feelings get in the way of embracing what the Bible says so clearly. Sincerity alone is not how to get your mind right. Second, a right mind requires recognizing that sentimentalism can be a hindrance to obedience. Sentimentalism can be a hindrance to obedience. I'll say it to you this way. Sometimes God's will is going to make you sad. Sometimes God's will is going to make you sad. Do you have a place? Do you have a category in your theology for that truth? Sometimes God's will, what He has ordained, is not what we would want. And in those moments, you see, what we have to learn is to walk in a supernatural joy that transcends our sadness. Does anybody want to believe that a family member of yours died without Jesus? Does anybody want to believe that? Does anybody want to believe that someone in your family who has grown up under the gospel and knows the gospel as well as you do and can give it as well as you do, does anybody want to believe that the evidences in their life point to their not having been converted? They know the right things, they say the right things, but then look at their life and then compare it to what the Bible says about the evidences of new life in Jesus Christ. What conclusions would you have to draw if you take the Word of God at face value? But we don't want that, you see. We don't want mom or daddy to have gone to hell. We don't want brother or sister to have gone to hell. We don't want to believe that our loved one doesn't know Christ. Peter didn't want to believe that his Lord would have to die. And so he adopted a perspective, he gave voice to a perspective that agreed with Satan. You and I have to submit not only our will to the truth of God's Word, we have to submit our desires to the truth of God's Word. It's not what I would want, but it is what it is. Because this is what the Bible says. You and I are going to be tested by that again and again as we live the Christian life in an unbelieving world. What do I wish it was versus what it really is? And I think one of the greatest evidences of genuine faith is when a person believes the truth even when on some level it breaks their heart. 
I know it's true, but it breaks my heart. But because you are a genuine believer, it doesn't break your heart entirely, does it? Because even in the sadness, you know the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know the joy of the truth. So that you're able to know a supernatural joy that transcends your sorrow. I wish it could be this way, but it's not that way. I can't deny the Word of God to try to argue it is this way. So this is the way it is, and it makes me sad on some level, but I know the joy of the grace of God that has made me His child and opened my eyes and given me a greater devotion to Jesus than even to my own family. That's supernatural. Word, if you sentimentally, but not scripturally, you will never have a right mind. So Peter doesn't agree with what Jesus says. He's made sad by what Jesus says because he hasn't yet submitted his mind to what is truly going to take place. It's the truth, whether Peter believes it or not. And so it is with us. I mean, if we want to live our lives out in some sort of deception, believing our emotions and our sentiments instead of believing Scripture, you understand it's only going to last as long as your life on this earth. You're going to come face to face with reality and eternity. And your preferences, your desires, and your emotions will not have changed anything. So do you want to know the truth? Third, a right mind requires recognizing that obedience means heavenly ambitions, not earthly ambitions. It's not what I want, it's what you have declared, God. It's not what makes me happy. It's not what I would most wish for. It's what you've ordained, and I will submit my emotions to that. Third, what this means is that I have to live with a singular ambition, an eternal one. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interest, you see. This is the battle for us, isn't it? What is eternal versus what is temporal? What has God said versus the way I wish it could be? What is the way of heaven? What is the way of the earth? That's where the battle for our minds exists. Will we set our minds on things above? Will we set our minds on what is eternally true? Will we set our minds on what most pleases God or on what would please us in our lack of understanding, in our lack of glorified desires? Our Lord has just declared the profound truth regarding His mission. Peter had his person right but didn't have his mission right. And before these men could go out and proclaim Jesus as the Christ, they had to understand not just his person, but his mission. And for that to happen, they had to understand who he was and who they were. And they had to get their minds right. Submitting everything in them to everything God revealed Peter knew the Lord, but he needed to know his Lord better. Peter knew the Lord, but he needed to believe his word. Peter knew the Lord, but he needed to receive the correction of his Lord. And he needed to submit his emotions and his desires and his aims to the will of God. And I say today that Peter's need is my need.
Peter's need is your need. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for our Savior. As we sang earlier this morning, hallelujah. We praise the Lamb of God who came into the world to save His people from our sins. Lord, in every other part of our lives, we are tested by our preferences. We are tested by our feelings where we would want to be your instructor. We find it difficult to submit. Lord, would you grant us the grace to get our minds right, to believe your word completely and to submit ourselves to it, every aspect, every realm of our person and of our living. We know, Lord, we will not do that perfectly, so thank you for your grace to us, your patience with us. Thank you for the Lord's correction. This is real in our lives as it was in Peter's life. Thank you that our failures don't represent total failure, that our failures don't represent the absence of faith, but the absence of what is to be completed, full conformity to the image of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to that end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.